beloved, uh, let's turn our attention to prayer and to God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. We pray that we would be more than hearers of the word, that we also be doers of the word. We can't be doers of the word unless you fill us with your spirit and give us your grace. And so we ask for that now in faith, that you would give us, Lord, um, the filling of your Spirit so that we would be controlled by the Holy Spirit, and that you'd give us grace to obey what we learn from your Holy Word. We love your Word, we treasure it, we pray that you'd help us to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thus far in our series, Embodied, we've been trying to sort of construct a theology of embodiment. We've been trying to get our minds around what this thing is that we inhabit and what it means. And we've covered a lot of ground so far. We started by considering that the body is a gift from God, that it's good and necessary, and that the body really places some helpful limits on us. Uh, it limits us in our ability to do things, and it limits us to a place so that we can inhabit and enjoy that place. We then consider the ways that we can sometimes have disordered relationships with our bodies because sin has come into the world, and through sin, things like falsehood, fear, uh, shame, and sinful desires, we distort our relationship with our bodies so that on the one hand, we can worship it, and on the other hand, we can abuse it. Uh, and sometimes our bodies and its desires control us, and so we're enslaved to it. And so we saw how it was necessary then that we reorder our relationship with our bodies by renewing our minds, presenting our bodies to God as living sacrifices, um, mortifying or killing sin in our bodies, uh, and, and treating our bodies as the temple of God uh, through the Holy Spirit. We reflect on the fact that to be embodied is also to, of necessity, be a social being. We reflect God's image and likeness in his triune nature and in his self-giving love. And so we are in a body to reflect those truths about God. Being embodied also enables touch. So we consider a theology of touch. We talked about the difference between sacred and secular or sinful touch. And we talked about the difference between sacred and sinful touch in three different kinds of relationships. The um, romantic relationship, the professional relationship, and the platonic relationship. We need to understand our bodies well so that we do something as everyday like touch. We do that with theological and biblical understanding. From there, we thought about how the body is a theological sign. So whether you are uh, embodied in a marriage, for example, which, which pictures or is a sign of Christ's consummation, his marriage with his bride, or whether we are um, single, embodied, uh, and celibate, that too is a sign of single-hearted devotion to Christ and satisfaction in him. We saw how we could be eunuchs for the kingdom, which means Jesus is sufficient for us. Or, or whether we have bodies that have some kind of impairment, some kind of disability. And that, too, is a sign that calls for God's self-giving love. And so our bodies are, are not just vessels, they are also preachers. 
They're also prophets. They point forward to uh, realities, spiritual realities in the kingdom and with Christ. From there, we spent two sermons on a theology of the body that were meant to help us think about um, sexuality and sexual morality. We thought about how the fact that our bodies are parts of Christ's body should make sexual immorality unthinkable to us. And then we thought about how, um, as embodied and redeemed persons, we have a new identity, that we have been washed, um, that we have been cleansed, and we have been sanctified. That's who we are in Christ, and that too should shape uh, the moral use of our bodies, particularly when it comes to sexuality. We went from there to consider uh, the body and shed blood, and justice, reflecting on Genesis chapter 4, where Cain slew Abel, and applying that to the black body today, and blood that's shed in the streets, and how it cries to God for justice. And last week, we thought about self-care, how to take care of the body. Now, all of that is kind of a, a positive, constructive theology of embodiment. And, and because of all of that truth, that sort of positive truth, if we're not careful, we can begin to think then that the body is something that we ought to always preserve and never sacrifice. Now, it is the case that we, we ought to take care of our bodies, we ought to preserve it in normal circumstances, but it is also the case that there are times when we are called to lay down our bodies, when we're called to give up our bodies, to sacrifice ourselves in a way that honors God, in a way that blesses others. So, that's what we want to consider this morning. Uh, the question is, when should we sacrifice our bodies? And to answer that question, we're going to survey the Bible, mostly the New Testament, passages from the New Testament. And in these passages of the New Testament, I want to suggest that bodily sacrifice is good and necessary on at least five occasions. Now, the first couple of occasions or reasons for bodily sacrifice, you might think of those as vertical reasons. They, they have to do with our relationship with God. And then the next couple, the next three or so, are, are sort of horizontal reasons. They have to do with um, when we sacrifice ourselves on behalf of other people. So there are God-informed reasons to sacrifice the body, and there are sort of people-informed reasons and occasions for sacrificing the body, five of them that I want us to consider this morning. So, when do we sacrifice the body? Number one, sacrifice the body when the Lord and the gospel demand it. When the Lord and the gospel demand it. To see that, look with me at Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? But whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, to follow Jesus is to follow the path of the cross. The cross was a tool, of course, for torturing and killing someone 
in ancient Rome. So to follow Jesus is to give up your life. That's the sign, the mark of discipleship, of cross-carrying. Verse 34, Jesus places self-sacrifice at the heart of Christian experience. It's as a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come die. So notice in verse 35, the Lord Jesus makes it plain that there will be times, quote, for his sake and the gospel, that we will have to lay down our lives, lose our lives. We have to give up our body to the flames. We may have to suffer the sword. And as precious as the human body is, it is not more precious than Jesus or the gospel. That's his point here, I think. And that's what Jesus does want to make clear in verses 36 and 37 when he asks those questions. If, if a man gain the whole world, what would it profit him if he loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That would be a fool's trade to take even everything in the world and to give up your soul. It would be better to sacrifice our bodies and even sacrifice the whole world if it meant keeping our souls for eternal life. So here Jesus is teaching us that there's a time to lay down the body, particularly when laying down the body exalts him, exalts the gospel, and preserves our soul. So here's the question. Do you think that Jesus and the message about Jesus, the gospel, are worth sacrificing your body for? See, Christian, we have not probably begun to follow Jesus the way Jesus expects, if we have not resolved to give up our bodies and to give up our entire lives for Jesus and the gospel. We have begun to lose our way if, if we once thought that, that we should follow Jesus that way, but now we no longer think that way. We are drifting. We have lost our way. And beloved, if you're not yet a Christian this morning, please understand something. In order to live, you must die. You must die to your desires. You must die to your ambitions. You must die to your possessions. You, you must die to the sense that your life belongs to you. You must give up your life in order to actually gain your life. That, that's weird to, to people who aren't used to thinking um, in a Jesus-centered way, in a cross-centered way. We, in the world, we think, no, the way to have life is to sort of keep it and add to it. But Jesus says, actually, it's the other way around. It's upside down. The way to have life is to give yours away. And specifically, if you would live eternally and live in the love of God, you must give away your life to God himself. You must say, here's my life taken. My life belongs to you. My body belongs to you. My soul belongs to you. You have purchased it with your blood. And so I lay it down. If you would live, you must die. You must turn from sin. You must turn from going your own way. You must believe that Jesus was crucified on the cross for your sins, that he was raised from the grave for your salvation. And you must follow him, believing that he is God's son, his only son, and believing that in him you have righteousness and eternal life. If you would live, you must die. So we give up our bodies, we sacrifice our bodies, 
for Jesus and the gospel is the second thing. We should sacrifice the body when faithfulness in persecution demands it. When faithfulness in persecution demands it. A recent article in Christianity Today began this way. Every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every week, 182 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. And every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. The article went on to say that an estimated 260 million Christians uh, suffer high to severe levels of persecution around the world. And this is not new. Right from the beginning of the Christian movement, Jesus announced that persecution would be one of the results of following him. So, Matthew chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, the Lord says there, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And it wasn't like he just mentioned that one time. This was a regular teaching for Jesus. So in John chapter 15, verses 19 and 21, we see the Lord say these things. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The world hates Jesus. They don't know the Father. So those of us who are associated with Jesus, with his name, we too will be hated in the world and persecuted just as he was. Uh, the Apostle Paul simply wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is a fact of the Christian life, and that persecution lands on the Christian body. To follow Jesus, as I said, is to be hated by the world the way Jesus was hated. And we have to endure that kind of mistreatment, which means we, we need to stop trying to be popular in a world that hates Jesus. Instead, we need to prepare for persecution because we love him. How do we face this persecution? Well, there are a couple of ways and uh, they're legitimate and, and one way that's illegitimate. Let me give you one legitimate way. The first way we can face persecution is by running. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 23. He says, if you're persecuted in one town, run to the next. There are times to flee if we can. God does not call us to sacrifice our bodies and our lives when there are non-sinful ways of getting away from the persecution. It's not cowardice to run away in order to live, to witness, or perhaps die another day. The Lord says, flee. Well, another legitimate way to endure persecution is to, to stand, to suffer. We may need to give up our bodies, give up even our lives as a matter of faith and faithfulness. Sometimes there's no way to avoid persecution without denying Jesus or denying faith. And it's in those times that we must welcome the persecution as an opportunity to prove our faithfulness to Christ. 
the sincerity of our love for him. And so a legitimate way to face persecution is to endure the suffering. And there's an illegitimate way to respond too, and, and that is to fall away. That's to, to wilt in the face of suffering. Some people do that. You remember the, the parable of the sower, where Jesus tells a story about a farmer who goes out sowing seed on different kinds of soil, and then there are different results in the uh, in the growth of that seed, depending upon the soil. You remember he, he talks about rocky ground. In Mark chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, this is what we read. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. We don't want to be rocky ground hearers of the word of God. Fair weather listeners to the truth of God. When it's all going well and we, we love God's word and we're happy about it, when there's some opposition or persecution that comes to us because of God's word, then we then we turn away. We wilt, we fall away. That's an illegitimate way to respond to persecution. Um, and it's a way that proves unfaithful rather than faithful. Here's the thing. The Bible repeatedly teaches that giving up our bodies in persecution is a noble way to die that God greatly rewards. Think of Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, when Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or think of those martyrs and sufferers for the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the hall of fame of faith. Remember how the last four or five verses of that chapter go? Verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It's a marvelous picture of people who are beaten and mistreated in, in the most violent ways, suffering in their bodies being outcast in wilderness and, and barren places, looking like nothing in the world. Yet, the world was not worthy of them. They were so much better in Christ than the world could recognize. So much better than the world itself. And there in verse 35, they, they were looking to rise again to a better life, a great reward. But when it comes to persecution, we have to be honest with ourselves, don't we? Here's the question. Are we willing to sacrifice our bodies when persecution comes? Are we preparing for that day? Are we just hoping that it never comes? Or if it does come, then all of a sudden we'll be the super Christians that um, we like to imagine ourselves to be? You know, beloved, we need to be readying ourselves to death. For that time that may come suddenly upon us, when we have to suffer for the word of God and suffer for Christ, 
We want to prepare today and ask God for help today and ask God for the development of character today that when and if that time comes, we would be like these saints in Hebrews chapter 11. And we would hear the Lord say, there's a great reward for those who suffer for his name's sake. And then we would suffer and endure for that reward. Which brings us to a third reason to sacrifice the body. Sacrifice the body when, when love and friendship demands it. When love and friendship demands it. So we give up our bodies for Jesus and for the gospel and for the word of God and in persecution. Those are sort of vertical reasons to give up our body. Now we're coming to the, the horizontal reasons to, to give up our body, the, the human relationship reasons. We should sacrifice our bodies uh, for friendship and, and to express love in friendship. Really, the, the entire Christian life is meant to reflect the image and the likeness of God. You remember that, right? That means, in part, that our lives must be oriented toward love. So consider Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the imitation of God finds concrete expression in loving sacrifice of the body. Jesus gave himself up for us. Now, as children of God, imitating our Father in love, we give ourselves up for others. The Lord Jesus himself teaches us this very thing regarding friendship. In John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, there the, the Master says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So our love for God should be reflected in our love for our friends, which should itself be a reflection of Jesus' self-giving love, sacrificial love. He loved us by giving himself up on the cross, dying for us in our place. So now, we must look to brothers and sisters in Christ. We must look to Christian friends and non-Christian friends as well with the same self-sacrificing love. In other words, beloved, there will be times when friendship will cost us bodily. If our friendship never cost us, then we're not really in friendships, or we only have relationships with people who don't need anything from us. But if we are close enough to people to be genuinely called friends, then at various times, in various ways, we now have to demonstrate our love by giving up our bodies, by giving up ourselves. And that bodily sacrifice may mean missing some sleep, missing some meals, may mean donating an organ or donating blood, and in some um, serious cases, it might mean risking harm or risking our lives in order to protect our friends. In, in a sense, beloved, we really cannot measure uh, love uh, or even get a good measure of the quality of friendship apart from giving ourselves in caring for others. Consider 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18. 
By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So let me ask you some questions. What kind of friends are we? Are we friends who love only in word or in talk? Or are we friends who love in deed and in truth? Do you have friends who lay down their lives for you? If so, do you appreciate them? Or, or have you sort of slipped into a certain sense of entitlement that they should do that? Do you understand, if you have those kinds of friends, do we understand that those sacrifices are meant to be interpreted as love? Do we resent giving up our bodies? If so, why? Is that resentment a failure to love, or are there some other kinds of heart issues and circumstances that, that need to be addressed? And I trust that what we understand here is we're not talking about putting ourselves in positions of being abused by others, of being sinfully used by others. So we're not talking about um, spousal abuse. We're not talking about friends who are manipulative and exploitative. Um, giving up your body in such circumstances is not what the Bible is talking about here. And we're talking about mutually life-giving and loving relationships that are built upon the pattern of the cross and the gospel, where we die to ourselves and give ourselves away to others. Are we those kinds of friends? Do we have those kinds of friends? Are we experiencing a family of friendship? Sometimes loving friendship requires bodily sacrifice. This brings us to a fourth thing. Sacrifice the body when shepherding God's people demands it. When shepherding God's people demands it. It's another one of those horizontal relationships, relationships between pastor and People that, that is to be marked, especially for pastors, uh, by sacrificial self-giving. Once again, Jesus is the pattern for this. The gospel is the pattern for this. So look with me in John chapter 10, verses 11 to 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, Jesus himself is the good shepherd. All of the shepherds are to follow his example, are patterned after his ministry philosophy. At the heart of what it means to be a good shepherd, at the heart of Jesus' ministry philosophy is this willingness to lay down his life for the sheep. And so the under-shepherds, pastors, ought to do the same thing. That's how Paul understood his ministry. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, he writes there, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 6, 
I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, the phrase poured out as a drink offering, of course, looks back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, where offerings, drink offerings, would, would be poured out on the altar in Old Testament Israel worship. Well, he sees now uh, not the blood of bulls and goats as he offered, but his own life, that it is being expended, it's being poured out so that the faith of the church might be built up and so that the, the, the sheep might know the teaching and instruction and care of the Lord. It's a metaphor for emptying your life for God's people. It's the kind of sacrifice that should be made, notice, not grudgingly, but gladly, Paul says, as he rejoices with the church. And that's what we want to see in a relationship between pastors and people. So let me give you a couple of applications here. For those of you who are uh, interested to serve in the ministry, that's a wonderful desire. I praise God for the number of men in the church uh, with gifts and desires, and uh, praise God for new pastors like Baba Tunde, whom we just called last Thursday. Praise the Lord for every person he gives us to serve in this way. But notice now, I want you to know you should never seek to serve in the ministry for your own comfort. And you should never seek to serve in the ministry expecting that it's going to be easy and without sacrifice. If, if, if we're the kind of persons who don't like to sacrifice ourselves, the ministry is not the kind of vocation we should choose. You think you want to be a pastor, but, but you don't want to give up your body, then one of two things need to happen. Either you need to forget about the Christian ministry, or you need to die to yourself and your comfort and realize that sacrifice is an integral part of ministry. I mean, how could it be otherwise? The, the, the Savior we serve, the, the sort of crowning act of his ministry is his sacrifice. The second application. Uh, as a congregation, as members, as Christians, we, we should encourage faithful pastors in their labors. We should learn to observe and to give God thanks for and to give them encouragement in their sacrifices. Just by way of example, uh, Pastor George and Pastor Tim, our two, um, two of our now three lay pastors, they have long hours of demanding work in their jobs. They both have young families and wives, and yet they gladly give themselves to serve the church family. This past week, pretty much every day this past week, we had some evening engagement where we were trying to care for some sheep, uh, counsel or catch up with someone, or have meetings of various sorts every, every night. Friday night was the new members meeting. Thursday night was the members meeting. Uh, Wednesday night, Tuesday night were both nights spent uh, counseling and caring for and praying for members of the church. They do it gladly. They do it without any sense of um, resentment or begrudging attitude. They pour themselves out on the altar of our faith. And we're so encouraged by the calling of Baba Tunde to serve among us. Because he's a guy who is uh, expressing an eagerness to, to shepherd the saints and to, to do the work as he calls it. He's been pouring themselves out as drink offerings. So we, we then want to honor such men as the Bible teaches. We want to pray for them and encourage them 
in their work. And not just the pastors, but this is also true of, of faithful deacons and deaconesses. Deacons and deaconesses, uh, maybe more so, are pouring themselves out and caring for the practical needs of the church and in a less prominent way than the pastors. Much of their ministry is often behind the scenes. Uh, we feel it if for some reason it doesn't go well, but we're often served by it and blessed by it, even though we never notice them or, or see them in their, in their work. We should recognize that as a Christ-like pouring out of self. And we should encourage and affirm and bless them for it. So we want to be the kind of congregation that's not marked by the sin of grumbling and complaining. Be careful with that. That can sneak up into every heart. That, that can arise in the, the soul of any Christian. That's why the Bible over and over again uh, warns against grumbling and complaining. God hates it. We don't want to be complainers. We want to be encouragers. We don't want to be those who tear down. We don't want to be those who build up, especially when we recognize the, the self-giving, sacrificial, sacrificial um, body-laying-down ministry of pastors and deacons in the church. Which brings us to a fifth and final thing. We want to sacrifice the body when justice demands it. When justice demands it. My favorite sort of biblical example of this, illustration of this, is uh, the life of Esther, Queen Esther. You know the story of Esther? She's selected to be uh, queen of a pagan king. She's Jewish. She's close with her uncle, Mordecai. Mordecai one day offends a man named Haman, who's one of the, the um, court officers of the king. Haman gets the king to give him uh, authority to put all the Jews uh, in the land to death. Haman comes to the, to the palace in sackcloth and ashes, crying out, uh, asking to speak to Esther. Uh, the whole palace guard is concerned because you don't appear in the courtyard um, mourning in sackcloth and ashes, crying out the way he was. Esther comes out, and, and he appeals to Esther to go to the king. And Esther says, basically, look, man, I've just been queen for 30 days. I've just been here a month, man. I, what you talking about, right? And so they take that, they take that message back to Mordecai, uh, and Mordecai responds in uh, Esther chapter 4, verse 12. Look there with me. And he told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. See, this is civil disobedience that risks the body for the sake of justice. This is a, a good sort of historical illustration of what the civil rights movement in the United States was built on. 
You have these Christians working for justice, disobeying the laws of the state, putting their bodies at risk of dog bites, water hoses, imprisonment, beatings, and death. Again, for the sake of justice. This is a very biblical, this is a, a very Christian way to respond to the world. Sometimes we have to put our bodies on the line for what is right and on the line for people, God's people in particular, who are mistreated rather than given justice. Esther knew the law. The king could put her to death. Yet she faced the consequences and, and offered her body for what was right to protect God's people. Queen Esther saw with great clarity that doing the right thing in defense of her people sometimes requires risk of body and life. That's what if I perish, I perish means. So she risked her body. She's not the only one. The midwives in Egypt, Shifra and Pua, did the same thing for the children in, in Egypt. David and his mighty man, men put their bodies on the line repeatedly in war after war uh, for Israel. Abigail did the same thing in going out to meet an angry David who had been stirred to anger because of her foolish husband Nabal. Daniel and the Hebrew boys sacrificed their bodies uh, in defiance of unjust laws of a pagan king. We could go on. If we would choose between protecting God's people and submitting to unjust laws, we should protect God's people, even if it requires us to sacrifice our bodies in some way. When justice is at stake, it may be important to lay down our lives. And beloved, we're living in a time where we more than ever need to be clear about this in our own lives. We need to be clear about the sort of ethics of, of embodiment and how to use and steward the body in sacrificial ways for the advance of the gospel and the honoring of Christ, yes, vertically, but also for the demonstration of love to others and the demonstration and the achievement of justice. We are embodied beings in order to reveal these aspects of God's character. Sometimes the way we reveal these aspects is by the sacrifice of the body itself. And we must all ask ourselves in these days, are we these kinds of Christians? So let's conclude. Whenever we refer to the phrase, the ultimate sacrifice, you've no doubt heard that phrase, someone made the ultimate sacrifice, we are tipping our hats to a theology of embodiment. With that phrase, we are acknowledging the precious value of our physical selves. We call it ultimate because the body is a one-time gift from God. It is very good and necessary. It helps us reveal God's image and likeness and, and it is a theological sign pointing in various ways to the kingdom of heaven. To lay all of that down it's an ultimate sacrifice. It is the greatest act of love. It is the spirit and action of the gospel. Jesus gave up his life for us that we might be redeemed from sin and live forever. Now, following him means 
giving up our bodies, our lives, for others and for Him when the time requires. May God give us grace to be those kinds of saints. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these precious bodies that you have blessed us with. They are gifts from you. Help us to steward our bodies, but keep us from worshiping our bodies. Help us to use our bodies, but not to wrongly abuse them. Help us, O Lord, to care for our bodies, but should the time come, give us strength, give us faith, give us courage and hope to sacrifice our bodies in all the ways that are right. Lord, we love you that you have made us embodied beings. Help us, O Lord, to enjoy the sense of embodiment, the reality of embodiment, more and more each day we pray. In Jesus' name.